This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Joining me on the show, first, he's a producer, writer, director, and half of the Lakers Exceptionalism podcast, Tom Z. How are you doing, what man? Up, what up? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me, having me again. Hey, happy to have you always. And also joining us, he's a founder of B-Ball Index and the other arguably better half of Lakers exceptionalism, the deus of data, Cranjus McBasketball. How you doing, Nick? You, you guys can call me Tim. Happy to be here. Although, I don't know if I'm happy to be here because it's a, it's, we're Lakers guys. This is going to be some Kings talking and my body is is repulsed and I'm feeling heartburn right now. Literally, we were just talking about it. But I am happy to be here. Always, always happy to join. And it was uh, fun to have you on our pod a little bit ago. We'll have to have you back. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm kind of stepping across enemy lines to get information. While you guys are Lakers exceptionalists, you guys are also basketball exceptionalists. So today we are talking Kings. I brought some questions, concerns, and overall observations for us to discuss. Currently, as of recording, the Kings are 12 and 16 and tied for 10th in the Western Conference. The season, they have been hot and cold, best exemplified with winning seven out of eight games a couple weeks ago, and then following it up with a five-game losing streak that is still continuing as of this recording. So the first thing I want to talk about is 2002, game six. No, I'm just kidding. So oh, the Lord. Kings start <laughs> most games with Harrison Barnes like either posting up or attacking the rim from the perimeter. And then it's something that they seem to like shy away from as the game continues. And I, I would like to see more of that, just him being aggressive and tacking the rim. But maybe it's not an efficient play. Tim, like what's the data say like with Barnes near the rim? Or is that an efficient play, the post up still in the game today? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because I remember back when Luke Walton coached the Lakers, we would seem to start the games with the same couple sets and it'd be like, oh, we're going to get a lob play for a big man, you know, the first play of every game or something like that. And then we just wouldn't go back to it. Um, yeah. Looking at Harrison Barnes and him attacking the rim from a post standpoint, he has, according to Synergy, he's posted up 33 times this season where he's drawn a foul, taken a shot or turned the ball over. And he's gotten 36 points on those possessions. So that's pretty good. His efficiency there is higher than 83% of the league. So not high volume, but he's been converting at a pretty good rate when he's when he's attempting to do that. And then when you throw in his pass outs, um, so in addition to his 36 points as a score, he also has 17 points from assists to teammates. Um, overall, between his post scoring and passing, he's been more efficient than 85% of players. So it seems like it's working out pretty well. I, it obviously doesn't seem like a super high volume thing for him. And Harrison Barnes, his offensive role year over year has changed quite a bit from the different teams he's been on. But uh, yeah, we've seen him used a little bit more with some teams as a post player than others. He's been everywhere, done a little bit of everything. So it's interesting to see the Kings tapping into that as a uh, just a score at the rim in general. We have him being more effective 
scoring at the rim while adjusting for the degree of difficulty than 59% of players. So nothing through the roof, but a little bit above average. Um, and uh, when we look at how he did the past couple seasons with that metric, he was in the 72nd and 89th percentile. So pretty good. So maybe we're seeing the lower end of what he can produce. We might see a, a rise as the sample size increases throughout the rest of the year. So I'd say, yeah, it, it seems like it's working out pretty well so far. And something that I noticed that helps them is it, like, they'll run this little play where, uh, you know, Fox will give up the ball to Heald and, and then he'll go down and come back to get the ball. And then heel peels off to basically go through a couple screens and pop out the other side. And then what Barnes is really good at part of why, part of why I think those opportunities is like, it's pretty predictable play, play like, Oh, get buddy healed. He's going to come out here on the left wing and Barnes will do a smart thing. We'll flash across the paint and kind of like get his defender on his back. And like, that's just creating a play out of another play, but it's not necessarily completely scripted. It's a lot of uh, instinctual improvisation where it, it might not be like a seemingly giant, size matchup between Harrison Barnes and like your undersized four, but he's actually gotten really good at like punishing guys and like using his weight and like bumping guys off of him, like just demolishing Danny green. He's not like a small, he's, he's thin, but he's, you know, he can hold his ground, but he can just bump a Danny green off of his spot now. So those guys are more often like threes and fours in the league now. And he's just able to like step in front and just, and Fox is, you know, fortunately able to find him too. And, and Fox is great. Like you said, Tim, like his passing out of uh, post-ups Fox is really good at being able to cut and, and either finish and even get a hockey assist, which won't even show up for Barnes's data. So that's like another category that like he's helping the offense in these post touches because it's a lot more organized. But to be fair, Tim, I don't know. Like their spacing on the weak side isn't great. They don't do flare screens and like a lot of a lot of. Do you see that too, Nick? Like when Harrison Barnes has the ball, the cutting isn't as organized, kind of as it should be. Yeah, unless Corey Joseph is on the court. Corey Joseph is mm. always active at moving around, always you know challenging his defender to keep track of him. Uh, and with that like play where he's busting inside, that's a nice counter that yeah he's about our only big man that does that where he will slip the screen or he'll basically yeah just read the defender organically within the play like you were talking about tom and with harrison i think because we've been missing like bagley for a certain portion of the season we've been missing holmes for a certain portion of the season whiteside was out for a certain portion barnes has been our only consistent big man and he's not a huge big man he seems to be almost wearing down a little bit as the season continues. So maybe that's a little bit of the reason why they aren't going to that play with him in the post as often because he couldn't sustain that efficiency. But you guys were both uh, talking about Fox there. So let's let's talk about him. He was on the low post last week and he talked about how defenders were going over the ball screen more often now that he's you know hitting his outside shot more consistently. But he's focusing on finishing at like near the rim but with short shots and floaters instead of putting his body in harm's way and i would think that that would be bad for efficiency numbers because one you're not getting contact or fouls and two it's just a further away shot but what like tom would you see as like a benefit to like him shooting a short range or even a mid-range shot which is you know becoming more and more rare in the game today 
Does that help put pressure on a defense or collapse a defense? What what are the positives that that can bring other than keeping them healthy? So it helps him be able to attack like different screen coverages in the mid range. Like if you're a mid range, efficient mid range scorer, those shots are open against almost every team in the league, mm-hmm. whether it comes from like a drop coverage or, you know, them going over and like really trying to smother you. Like you can still kind of pull your guy off, you know, in one direction and find some space in the mid range to not have to, you know, yeah. D- Darren Fox isn't a huge guy. He maybe can't take go into the rim like a Russell Westbrook can. Um, he's in the you know per cleaning the glass, ninety seventh percentile at the rim, seventy one percent, which is great. And overall in the mid range, he's fifty eighth percentile at forty two percent, which is pretty good. But is it? Uh, as efficient as you need to be, Tim, to keep that play as like a, a feather in your cap that you can go to over and over. I don't know. Yeah, it's so shooting at the rim is more effective for from both an efficiency standpoint and then also in terms of being able to draw fouls, getting to the rim. Like shots at the rim and free throws are mm-hmm, two right. of those three most efficient types of attacking in basketball, in addition to like open corner threes. So like you said, Tom, he's already pretty good at getting there and finishing. I think you said 97th percentile. When we look at his data at B-Ball Index in terms of getting to the rim, finishing at the rim, he his uh, getting to rim rating uh, is eighth among all players. And that's looking at how he's able to create unassisted shots at the rim. Mm. And then his shot difficulty at the rim, and this is interesting, has been the most difficult of any player in the league. So even though he's already scoring at a really high rate, that's 97th percentile, he's doing it on crazy, crazy hard difficulty, which is really impressive and and is part of the reason why his finishing at rim rating, which does adjust for that difficulty is fifth in the entire league, which is probably like 98th or 99th percentile. Um, But maybe what that indicates is he is forcing it perhaps a little bit. And I know spacing for them schematically, there's, there's plenty of opportunity there in Sacramento. There's a lot of room for growth in the environment around him, but in a year where they're probably not going to be making like a big playoff or title push, I can understand him shifting a little bit towards body preservation. And then also in a season where we don't have a lot of practice time for teams, taking those extra reps and trying to work and develop a skill set that is valuable to have. Like if he can consistently knock down those mid range shots, that is, I mean, that's something that'll be there in like drop coverage. Um, when, when the big man in the, the ball screen is really dropping into the paint and trying to defend the rim, instead of trying to force that shot at him, shoot that floater, shoot the mid-range shot. If you can hit those, that's useful. But in addition to that, being able to hit that shot might pull that big man up towards you a little bit and then open up a little pocket pass to your roller in a way that wouldn't otherwise be open if the big man isn't respecting your mid-range shot and knows you're going to be coming at him. We see this with Talon Horton Tucker with the Lakers sometimes where everybody oh, knows everybody he's trying to get to the drink. rim. Everybody take a drink. <laughs> everybody knows he's getting to the rim, which he's very good at, but because that's like his one pitch right now, defenses are, are kind of gearing up against that and that's hurting his efficiency, even at the thing he's really good at because he isn't doing the other things, you know, like shoot left-handed layups or, or hit mid-range pull-up shots. 
with Fox, he's he's certainly better at those areas than than THT. But the more he can be consistent and effective with those and have a really good first, second and third pitch. Yeah, exactly. It, it just raises that water raises all all the tides. The tides raise all the boats, something about boats and tides. But it's good for Fox if he gets better. <laughs> yeah, good, good things happen for the Kings if Fox is hitting the mid range shot, too. And yeah, I think it's that spacing that Tom was talking about earlier, where just when he goes to the rim, why wouldn't three defenders be there? When yeah. the Kings have Bagley and Holmes on the court at the same time. What this says to me, Tim and, and Nick uh, about Fox is that he maybe he realizes, and I don't think the quote he gave was like, I'm no longer going to the rim. This sucks. I'm hurt. You know, it, not at all. Right. It's more of a, a, a ratio and, and, and balancing things out a little better. And let's be honest, like if, Every team's goal is the championship. If they want to get to that mountain, De'Aaron Fox has to be an efficient, deadly three-level scorer. You, If you're a guy that size, you have to be able to score at every level on the court. Three, mid-range, at the rim. He's got at the rim. Threes are starting to come along a little bit better for him, you know, since he started his career. And that mid-range is kind of no man's land for a lot of people, but it's still important if, you know, if guys know they can just adjust to you in a certain way that gives you all mid rangers and all floaters and you're not ready for it. Like, and you're significantly less efficient at it. Then it's really easy to kind of find ways to, to suffocate these small guys, just even with just size. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone heard that, but the, the alert went off to make us <laughs> put another THT reference into the podcast. Exactly. I just want to point that out. That's the <laughs> THT alarm. Well, speaking of THT, the Kings do have a young TH on their team, Tyrese Halliburton. And when he's on the court, good things seem to happen. From what I've noticed, he's like incredibly quick with his decision making, has a knack for timely shots and like just a general overall awareness when it comes to passing lanes or making the right decision on a defensive scramble. And I genuinely, genuinely think that he can be like a top 30 NBA player in the next couple of years with his athleticism and with his like basketball IQ from what I've seen right now. But what do you see, Tim, that makes him so successful? Like what, what are the aspects of his game that you can see there in the data where you can point to and be like, that's why he's good. That's why good things happen. Yeah, so he's been really impressive, especially offensively and being able to be effective on and off balls. I think a big piece of why he has the offensive impact that he does as a shooter. He's just been a knockdown three point shooter. We have a a metric that looks at three point proficiency adjusting for difficulty and he's in the 95th percentile he ranks 24th in the entire league at just like knocking down shots um from three so that's really helpful that lets him play off ball with a guy like fox the intuition and and the instincts he has is in terms of when to cut uh i was watching the film and i was like man is this is this like Kyle kuzma over here all of a sudden like very active cutting and caruso stuff (laughs) drink yeah that's a good point he's he's (laughs) He's exhibiting some of those positive behaviors and attributes we see with players that we watch every day that reminded me uh, that reminded me of them when watching his film. And as a cutter finishing, he's been good as a cutter or a driver passing. He really impressed me. His his playmaking. So like from ball screens, I think that was another really impressive thing. So as a ball screen score, he has room for growth. He can make that jumper a little bit more consistent. He is settling for a lot of floaters. And he's like, okay, at finishing at the rim. I think if he can get a little bit better finish, finishing at the rim and knock down the jumpers at a more consistent rate, he'll increase his pick and roll scoring 
But as a pick and roll passer, he's making a lot of the reads. He's throwing skip passes. He's got the pick and pop read down. Um, he uh, several times I saw him like see a defender kind of stunting in, taking an extra step from the perimeter to stop a drive, and they were just like flat footed, and he made the pass to their guy, and they got some open threes. That most players they would see the, the where the defender was standing and where their player was. It's they're not open, but because their momentum was leaning a specific way, they were in fact open. So those sorts of reads, I think, were really impressive to me. As he gets more experience under his belt, he'll develop more the the technique and the pace behind attacking and ball screens and like putting guys in jail behind you. And th- there's more he certainly has to to grow, but he's already a guy that can facilitate a bit, score a bit on ball and off ball, knock down some threes. And like you said, his defensive, I think his defensive activity mm-hmm. has been good. His defensive impact overall hasn't quite been and we see this with a lot of guards so for me it's not a super concerning thing but if you're to look at like our impact database at people index and see that he's lower than you might think it's it's because of the defense is the entire king's roster on the bottom of that list most of them are uh one of the guys (laughs) i know you're a fan of we'll talk about a little bit later he shows up pretty positive um in hassan whiteside and rashawn holmes actually i think has the highest defensive impact on the team and he's been a really versatile strong defender for them this year but most of the team isn't doing so hot (laughs) and uh there we we can get into a little bit later but there are some things i think schematically can improve and you know just him as a young player he'll grow into some of these things learn the techniques and get all that down. But so far he's showing the defensive playmaking a little bit that you want to see um, overall, if we're looking at like his impacts um, in terms of what he's bringing, let me see if I can pull the numbers up. Okay. So his offensive impact among all rookies is second in the league behind only Emmanuel quickly. He, his aggregate impact, total offense and defense accounting for minutes played is second in the league behind only LaMelo ball. So he's been, in that top tier as a rookie already, that's really impressive. And if we look at players his age going back a little bit further, so 2013 until now, there have been 30 point guards in our database in their age 20 season. So he may not be 20 like right now, but he's in his age 20 season. There were 30 of those guys. His impact among that group was fifth out of those 30 behind only Luka Doncic, Trey Young, Jamal Murray, and D'Angelo Russell for offensive impact, I should say. And he's right ahead of uh, John Morant. So that's good company to be in. Um, So, you know, the defense is still, it's below average. He's got some room to improve there and he's still very raw. He can certainly, like he'll get better over time, but he's already right now at a really good starting point in some of those mental IQ things I see with him that are encouraging for me and make me think that like, as he continues to grow, he does have some potential to become one of those higher level players, like you mentioned but it's going to come down to like, you need to be like Tom said earlier with Fox, a three level score. And right now he doesn't quite have that like pull up jumper there. And his finishing at the rim right now is kind of average, but he's got some of the passing instincts and just the IQ in general. And I think there's defensive potential there. So I'm in on him. Uh, He's been really impressive and and he was a lot of fun to watch in preparing for this podcast. All right, Tim, because just because you, 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 you know, said all those good things, I gotta, I gotta, devil's advocate a little okay just just to bring stuff up okay i'm just trying to you know create a conversation so Ty- tyrese halliburton right as of right now per clean the glass is shooting 22 for 30 at the rim it's crazy 89th percentile 73 percent overall and shooting accuracy at the rim but tim where it balances out like you said he's not great at the rim 
he only gets to the rim 15% of the time. So 30 field goal attempts and five fouls drawn. And that's in the 20th percentile. He isn't able to get to the rim perhaps as much as he might need to be. So I don't know. Is there any more kind of insight in the data about his at the rim stuff? So, you know, we just mentioned the three level scoring with guys kind of, you know, he's kind of a wing instead of a, a, a point at this point. So I don't know if it's as important, but what, what do you think about that? I think that, so that was reflected in some of the data I found as well. He, when he's gotten to the rim has been okay. The sample size has been small given the degree of difficulty. Like he's been fine. The raw numbers look good, but like our math doesn't quite trust it yet because it's such a small sample. The fact that it's a small sample is an issue given how much he's played and and you're mentioning getting to the rim aspect of it. And as I pull him up, uh, his getting to rim rating is eh, 66th percentile isn't that's not awful but for a guard it's a little bit below where you would prefer like a point guard to be so I, I do think that's an area of opportunity for him in ball screens his percentage of shots at the rim from a pick and roll was very very low he a lot of times will set or settle for the floater because he also doesn't quite have the pull-up jumper in the pick and roll so a lot yeah. of his floaters are like either a lot of them are really long. Like they're impressive when they go in and his efficiency is good, but it's like, this shouldn't be what this looks like. Um, Credit to you for being able to hit those shots, but like, that's not, this isn't, you know, ideal, beautiful basketball pick and roll sort of stuff. Um, So yeah, he has to get better at some of those, you know, the third level and the second level. um, If we're saying the first level is threes, because he's got the catch and shoot threes down, but yeah, he he certainly can improve in a couple different ways. It sounds from like what I'm hearing here, it, what the data is saying kind of matches up with the eye test. Cause I would say that he doesn't have a great handle at this point. Like if somebody really gets up into his shorts on defense, he will dish it very quickly. And he doesn't have a lot of those one, two, three moves. He has like a sidestep three or yeah, put it on the bounce and then a floater. And I think he's shooting those long floaters instead of jump shots because he has that weird release. See, he has a yeah, weird looking shot. I assume that he's doing that for speed purposes, but I would say the eye test matches what I'm hearing there. And I love hearing that all the good company that he's in. But let's talk about a couple other young players here. Uh, We drafted Jemias Ramsey and Robert Woodard the second. We also have Kyle Guy and Shamiz Matu. And I don't know if those aren't real people. I've never heard of these people before. Are we sure these are real people? You just made those all those names up. Matu, I really like him. He's kind of like a little. Me too. He's like discount white side, which isn't a great sell to like an NBA fan. But again, like when he comes in, he seems to protect the paint better than some of our other big, especially Bagley. It was just like a matador out there. Um, and you might've seen Matu had the dunk on uh, Valanchunas the other night and then Valanchunas pulled him to the ground. Now he has a broken wrist. So, you know, Thanks, NBA. No punishment there or anything. If that was LeBron, that would be 25 games. But He tried to teabag the man on national television. Nah, he grabbed his leg before. Study the study the film. I'm coming from a biased uh, side here. But out of any <laughs> of those guys, you know, whether you've heard of them or not, is there a future for them as like a playoff caliber rotation player? I have not watched much film. The numbers are just a bunch of shrugs because they haven't played a whole lot. Uh, I will say Woodard's uh, defensive versatility was really high so far. Not, 
I don't know how effective he's been uh, on the smaller sample, but he's so far been used in a lot of different matchups, you know, not quite like a one through five defender, but a little bit more versatile than a lot of players are. So I thought that was encouraging. Kyle Guy's a guy that coming from Virginia, he was a good shooter, good. I don't know if I'd call him like, he's not like a table setter. He's not like that kind of playmaker, but he's a good ball mover. And he's really smart when it comes to running off of off ball screens. So that's the type of guy that you can, throw in and, and, you know, kind of like a Joe Harris style of player, perhaps. I don't, he's not at that level, no. of course, but um, that kind of player is perhaps how he could fit in if he is able to grow his skill set into an NBA, like you said, playoff caliber. I wouldn't, I mean, none of these guys have really popped so far um, from, from what I've been able to see and what the, the numbers are looking at, but none of them also scream like, hey, this isn't going to happen. So it's a very much a we're going to have to wait and see. And maybe as the season progresses, depending on where the Kings are in the standings, we might see a shift in minutes. Maybe if, if their sellers at the trade deadline or something and more opportunity opens up, we might get to see some more chances for these younger guys to show out. To answer the question, playoff caliber rotation minutes? No, probably, probably not. not. Probably soon. not. Yeah. Woodard has the more physical tools, I think, like Tim was saying, to be able to like stick around on defense, but Metu, dude, he like, he looks lost out there to me and, and getting, getting the big in position, even like just theoretically near the right position could help him. And, and you know, I'm not trying to talk down on a guy who's, who's trying to get his way in the league. He just looks lost out there to me, like just knowing where to be and when, and that's part of like going back to the Halliburton, you know, uh, conversation he just always is connected to the play and the players around him whether it's offense or defense like the players he's with or playing against he's aware and conscious of how almost every player movement changes the geometry of the court and he can fill those spots like Nick, you've sent me so many clips this year right where he's he's baiting guys into skip passes he like just to sit on and like so he knows oh maybe if i scoot like another half foot to the left here it'll be like just enough for him to throw that and then i'm sitting on it and i'm i'm ready to go jump that passing lane with any of these guys like metsu does not have a, a defensive connectedness in any way that I've seen so far. I agree. And I think you could say that for all of our big men on defense, except for Holmes and Whiteside. And some of that has to come down to coaching and scheme, right? Like you should at least have a few fundamental things as a big man that like for sure, you know, on certain possessions, like this is how we're guarding like a ball screen if you're involved in it. And this is how like you're handling like the low side of offside defense, like the help on the low side if you're the big man. Right. Those are just fundamental, basic understandings of what you're doing out there. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, you're talking about like day week one high yeah. school. Yeah. Like, all right, this is our shell defense. And when the ball is in that corner, here's where everybody should be standing. And when the ball's here, this is where everyone should be standing. And if they run a ball screen, the low man's the help. He needs to stand here. If it's a pop, that guy's helping. He needs to stand there. And as you're watching, if you like not like zone out, but if you just like look bigger picture as if everyone's like an X and an O at times defensively you can notice just that beautiful flow of that shell as the ball moves around and players move yeah. around but then if somebody's not part of it they stick out like a sore thumb because they're not moving with everybody else and they don't have that connectedness like tom is talking about so yeah i agree these are more fundamental basic things and there's the type of stuff that young players 
in college, you can get away with a little bit more in the NBA. You can't get away with that stuff and you need practice time and film sessions to work on that. And this season in particular, due to COVID has made that much more challenging. And we see that manifest in a bunch of different ways. But I think this is one of those where the young players don't have as much opportunity in low stakes environments to learn through that and figure that out. Cause that's not as much the type of thing that you just figure out by watching on film. You, you want to get a feel for, okay, here's where I stand. Here's where my momentum needs to be all of those sorts of things. And you don't have that opportunity this year, given COVID the limited practice time and then the limited minutes, these guys are playing just in general. Yeah. And they didn't, you know, really get an opportunity to all play together, even in the bubble. And then they didn't make the playoffs in the bubble. So they haven't played much over the last year. They're in a similar boat to a lot of the teams that didn't even make the bubble. Like the team that the Kings brought down there isn't like the Kings team that you're seeing even on the court. Yeah. One thing I have liked that they've done on defense is Walton, or at least early in the season, was using this trap press. And I thought it was really effective at like shortening possessions or interrupting the other team's flow. Tom, it's something I pointed out to you, I think, on yeah. the first, like we did like the week one recap. And then they just kind of have just stopped doing it. So why do you think they've gone away from that, Tom? And like, is pressing worth it in the NBA? There's different levels of pressing, right? There's like pressing where, okay, uh, Dennis Schroeder, you're going to pick up Kyrie Irving full court and just, just be a hassle. Right. I know, you know, Dennis didn't play last night against the Nets, but it's the same kind of principle. Like just don't let them bring up the ball uninterrupted and have, you know, 19 seconds left on the shot clock and easily be able to get into their sets. You know, it's all about disruption to some degree. And Tim and I talked a little bit about trapping and pick and rolls, at least uh, on a couple pods ago about how it is an aggressive defense and it may look like it's a high risk, high reward proposition, but when it's a base defense and when it's expected, you lose the advantage of the surprise and you lose the advantage of, of getting, of using that, that aggressive like kind of playing style mm -hmm. to your advantage because it's expected now. And there are so many easy ways to break that, in 75 feet of floor that it's it's you can't recover from that and you're giving you know simple role players you can't create their own shot like an easy you know four on three advantage or something like that to make the right play and and they don't have to think too hard about it or someone's going to get an open three so it's high risk high reward and maybe for your team, it makes some sense because of your youth and uh, energy that you have over some teams. Like, you know, maybe if you did that to the Lakers over the course of an entire game, it could wear them down to some extent, uh, you know, at least in their like limited capacity right now. So it's just like, it, what was it like 3% Tim in the, in the trapping, like the difference between the turnover rate uh, against like catch hedges and in, is like 10% and, and really trapping a pick and roll is like 13% turnover percentage. So yes, it's like a 30%, you know, uptick in, in turnovers and positive things, but what are you giving up as a result on the back end of like just efficient plays that they might not otherwise have? And it's funny that you mentioned those percentages because the Kings on the year, when they've pressed, they've turned teams over at about 13 and a half percent. And then when they don't press, it's about 10%. So it's actually been quite similar to like the big picture league numbers with that specific pick and roll coverage. And Tom brings up a great point of, of scalability. 
when it's predictable and when I know like leaving our timeout, leaving our huddle, we're like, all right, well, remember, this is how we're going to break the press. That is a different situation to be in compared to somebody hits a shot, you know, Whiteside runs over, grabs the ball, turns around, and then all of a sudden there's nobody open. And with five seconds, you have to figure out what the hell's going on. So it's, or not Whiteside, but the, the other team. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you guys got where I was going. Uh, so in that st- from that standpoint, especially if it's a more aggressive press, you have to worry about how much you can use it. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of factors that go into us. The, the go into this, the wear and tear on players, I think is a piece of it. If you have a big edge from like the size of your rotation, or you have guys that are in really great shape, and that's like something your team's going to be really, you know, you're going to focus on conditioning that can help with this. Like I, if I knew I wanted to be a high caliber pressing team, like a VCU in college, they, they, they're training with Navy SEALs in the off season. Like they are in great shape. They run a deep rotation and they're fully committed to it, whether they're getting blasted by other teams, countering it or not in the NBA. What I would try to do is more of like the Villanova version of, of the college pressing at the NBA level where it's more of a token press where I'm not trying to turn you over. I'm just trying to waste your time. Yeah. Shorten that shot clock. Yeah, exactly. The shot clock's already very short. So if you can, and, and people have looked at this, if you're able to get into your offense with like 20 seconds left on the shot clock and run a full 20 seconds of offense, you're going to be much more effective than if you take your time. And by the time everybody's set up, whether it's, you know, being lazy, you know, walking up the court, or it's people not knowing where to stand and you're getting into your set play. If you're starting to run your, your first attack with 12 seconds or 14 seconds left on the shot clock, you're going to be less efficient. So this is one way to force that to a degree. You may not be generating a ton of turnovers, but you also won't be giving up easy layups or committing a bunch of fouls. So more of a token, like a one, two, two press or a, just a man to man full court, not trying to foul, not trying to steal, just trying to slow you down. If you can take off three seconds per possession that the other team could otherwise be running on offense, big picture, that's going to be really helpful to you. So that is what I would be looking to do a little bit more of. I think that's kind of more along the lines of what the Kings had experimented with. The results on the season are harder to track with the synergy data because it'll like look at that, but then look at the entire possessions. So like whether shot went in or not, like towards the end of the to do with the first five or six seconds where they were pressing but what i did notice just watching through the film was that it did regularly slow down the other team's ability to get into their offense early so for that reason i think it's a pretty good idea i'm surprised they haven't gone to it a little bit more i think at some point some team's going to and i don't know if you can do it consistently be committed to it and and you have just legs, chew right? up the other teams yeah if you've got a a, a young group of guys and a deep rotation and you're in good shape why not take away an extra three, four seconds of possession that the other team could be trying to run offense with, especially if you're a struggling defense. I totally agree. And it can also work. Yeah. Just in disrupting the rhythm in the same way, like intentionally fouling like hack a shack would, where that just throws off. Like if a shooter's hot or something like that too, just disrupting this like consistent flow that you have of running up and down the court and where you go. And then run the real trap every now and then, mm-hmm. like then you yeah. you're, you're set up for it already, but then take it a step further and, and, and have that element of surprise. Cause going from nothing to trapping is right. a little bit harder. You may not be as set up as opposed to we're already going to do a token press and then we turn it into a real press misdirection stuff. The last like really aggressive trapping defense that I can think of would be like those early tens heat teams. And that would be like in a half court set, but they were 
pretty aggressive, right? Off the pick and roll, they did a mm-hmm. lot of trapping. I'm, I have it pictured yeah, correctly no, no, in my right. mind what it looks like when a team's... Yeah. They also had LeBron James and Dwayne Wade in their prime, so... Chris Bosh, it's a big dude, too. Lots of arms. That's true, know. that's true. All right. Sorry, shout out to you, Chris Bosh. <laughs> but really quick, okay, before we move on to the next topic, I want to, I want to take us off, off Bo Creator. Just to throw... Tim, I want you to set up what we talked about Glenn Robinson third in the off season and how much you thought he could provide to the Lakers off the bench. And I want Nick to tell me if that's what he's getting. Okay. Let me pull some data. Cause I feel like I'm going to have to defend myself. Here. <laughs> so, okay. So the idea with Glenn Robinson, when we were looking at different players and over the off season, trying to find guys who could be good bargains, cause mm-hmm. the Lakers didn't have a bunch of money to play with. We were like, who cheap can we go after that? given their situation now and given where we'd be able to slot them in just from an environment standpoint, they'd be able to benefit a good bit. And Glenn Robinson was one of those players. And the thought was in Philly last season, he was used as like a wing stopper taking on crazy tough, uh, difficult matchups. And we have data for this. Mm -hmm. He was way over his head in terms of the job he was asked to do and didn't perform well because from what I believed, he was asked to do way too much for what he's capable of. But if used more as like an off-ball guard defender, chasing dudes around screens, like he's been good at that in the past and slotted into a better defensive job, a better defensive role, I thought his defense could be more neutral. I didn't think it was going to be a huge positive, but more neutral than the negative it was last season. And then offensively, he was a guy who had really good shooting data, uh, okay finishing data I believe at the rim and then if I'm recalling correctly he had good ball mover data it wasn't a big playmaker but if you're throwing a skip pass to him in like a 2v1 weak side situation and the defender comes to him he'd be able to make that simple read and pass it to the next guy over for the, the more open shot turn down the good shot for the great shot so that's where I saw him potentially fitting in and then it didn't happen and I haven't watched him play much so, so fill us in on uh, what happened sounds next. like sounds like a great player Nick you, you stoked to have Glenn Robinson I don't mind him. I believe the data at the rim. He's weirdly not a good finisher. <laughs> but he did get the start last night. You know, shout out to him. Is that why Tyler Hero went 12 for 17? You know what? Everybody has their best offensive night versus the Kings. Really, if you want to watch good basketball, watch every Kings game and watch the other team. Because you just get to see every team just unimpeded get to run their favorite offense and get all the shots that they want. That sounds so familiar. That sounds very Tom. Does that sound familiar to you? Familiar. Uh, Lakers a couple years ago with a specific uh, coaching staff. Every night, some randos having a fucking career night. Yeah, it, sorry. It, it, you know, <laughs> it, it's fine. It, this this all needs to be said. You know, I feel like this is a little bit of like a intervention for me, so I don't get too attached to Luke Walton. I'm not a huge fan. It's not like if he got fired. I really just don't want him to get fired too soon. I've told Tom about this, and then Gentry takes over and wins just enough games that Gentry gets the job. That's my worst nightmare. So I'm hoping that Walton stays on at least through the season and then gets fired in the offseason. They go look elsewhere outside of the organization. But Tim, you had a Freudian slip earlier because he's in our in our heads and in our hearts. Hassan Whiteside. Uh, let's talk about this. This is a stat that I've been pointing out on Twitter for a while. When he plays more than 12 minutes, the Kings have a winning record. When he plays fewer than 12, they have a losing record. And for a while there, it was dramatic. They were like 9-3 and three and 3-8. Three and eight. Uh, What is it, Tim, that Whiteside is doing on the court that's so effective? You were teasing it earlier there. Uh, it's It's got to 
at least involve his rim defense, right? Yeah, it's he's a good rim protector. He defensively in his career has been a pretty positive impact defensive player. And he, with his skill set, he's good at what he's good at, and he's not good at the things he's not good at. So once we get to the playoffs, much like many other anchor big type rim protecting guys that are less mobile, his effectiveness will drop, just like a Rudy Gobert or like many other less mobile big men who's their their shot blockers. So we've seen how he can look if you try to attack him in the right ways in a playoff environment. But for regular season defense, especially if, if a team's running a bunch of drop coverage, like he can be really positive. The Kings don't run much drop coverage. You guys have switched a bunch and there, there's a, it's not the right defensive scheme to optimize him. But despite that, he's had the second highest defensive impact of any player on the team, uh, according to our defensive uh, LeBron metric. Um, and he offensively has been efficient in the post. He's been efficient knocking down just jump shots or not jump shots. I take that back. Uh, dump offs, not jump shots. Um, and then he's been a pretty good role man too. So he can do the things he's good at. He can set some decent screens. I don't think he's some incredible player, but I mean, I, I struggle to see why he hasn't played a little bit more from an outsider perspective, given that when he has played, he's been really effective. He has the second, or I'm sorry, so second highest defensive impact, third highest overall per 100 possession impact of any player on the Kings team. So why is he not getting just more of a chance, even if maybe he's not a long-term solution? I know he doesn't fit with the defensive scheme all that much, but given who else is on this roster, I would think that he'd be given more opportunities to play. He also plays with the casualness of like a pickup game, which is why I think I'm so drawn to him because it, it legitimately looks like he's not trying. Like, I don't, I don't think I've seen him sweat this season. <laughs> like he doesn't work hard enough. And I don't mean that like in a direct, like getting at him. Like he, maybe he just doesn't need to, uh, the old, like when, uh, People talk about Shaq. Shaq, you know, is like a 4.0 student who is okay with getting a 3.1 and partying hard. And Whiteside kind of comes off to me as that type of dude. Like, if he had the drive of LeBron James, he, he could have been like a top 100 all-time player, you know, if he had put in the time. But, like, he puts in just enough effort to do the things that he wants to do on a court. Tom, I know you and I go back and forth about him a lot, and it kind of drives you crazy how much I'm on the bandwagon for him because he doesn't fit the criteria of a Nick Jaley player at all. He's like the one anomaly on the bus with me here. But what, what do you think of Hassan Whiteside and why do you think he's so effective for the Kings? Well, listen, anytime that you can have a guy on your team not play him enough as a young guy, let him go to Miami and make a bunch of money and like all-star games and then bring him back after he's made the money, but doesn't really want to play up to the caliber that he's capable of. You have to resign him, right? Clearly. Oh, I forgot about the career arc with him. <laughs> he like, that's, what's funny to me. And, and the like, Kings, kind like of... the Kings Twitter, like pump it up. They're like, since day one. And they have like him <laughs> and then him now. And I'm just like, there's a lot of stuff going on in the middle. No, I just like con conceptually. Right. It, it is great. Look at what the Lakers did to Dwight Howard. I'm not saying redemption stories are bad or dumb great for you. Like he got a minimum contract, he, it, which is still kind of surprising to me, Tim. Like I don't love Whiteside, but yeah, what he can do seems more valuable to me than like <laughs> Tristan Thompson got in Boston. 
Yeah, the the differential between what the math said he should be paid or the, the range he should be paid and what he was actually paid, I think was probably the largest of any player. Where it was to the point where I was like, hey, like, did he murder somebody? Like, what is <laughs> yeah. going like is some are we waiting for a bombshell? Because like he was like not that bad last year. Like he was he was a positive player. Vivek's gonna buy his documentary as soon as he retires, <laughs> just like for 25 million. <laughs> But like that's part of the issue to me about the team is like they they were they were cool with taking that baggage. That's fine. That you know that in in a vacuum that one decision isn't a bad decision, but you know you're taking you still have I I'm curious like Rashawn Holmes plays 29.4 minutes a game, right? So mm-hmm. there's like 19ish center minutes and Whiteside's getting 14 of them. What are y'all doing at the other 5 minutes? You got Bielitsa at the 5 or is this I'd like sometimes it's Bagley. Like yeah. if these are the other or options, some, then like go Barnes you, okay, in the right circumstances, I can see that being okay. Right. But it wears like, them down as we've been talking everyone, about. Like, sure. Sure. Everyone has to be able to shoot in that lineup. You play fast, you get up and down. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to gang rebound defensively, but you live with what you get, whatever. But like Marvin Bagley at the five is just, like, I, I, and Bagley, you know, we haven't talked too much about him, probably for good reason, because he's not looking great so far. I don't I don't even have a question about him. I don't have any questions about him. I, I'm ready for him to go. Yeah. So to just like team concept wise, right? Like team process wise, there's 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 two guys for one spot here. And yeah, you want to try and give Bagley the benefit of the doubt because the upside's higher. But if you want to build like a winning culture around certain principles, like Hassan Whiteside and his defensive presence allows you to play a certain way that is maybe it won't be Hassan Whiteside in five years when they're actually trying to contend, but it'll be a guy who can play defense, you know, somewhat like him. So get these guys more reps with him already so they know how to navigate all the counters of a drop coverage. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. I is is this a situation where he's kind of in Luke Walton's doghouse? Because we saw that with young player, yeah. well, not all young players, but we saw that with many players with the Lakers and like I think like Buddy Heald has been in that yeah. world for a lot of his Kings career with Luke Walton. So is that something that's going on? The other thing I can think of is just the fact that he's more a drop coverage big and the Kings aren't running much drop coverage. Maybe they've decided, hey, we're not gonna be winning a ton this year, even though he's helping us. We're gonna look past that. We want to develop a different defensive scheme and he's just not a fit so we're going to roll with those barns at the five minutes instead um that's the other potential theory that i have because he's been good when he's played and like you said like the team's been winning more when he's played and like even if it's not winning in exactly the way you want to i'd rather win a little bit more and especially like developing that culture yeah i'd always rather win i'm not one for tanking at all i i don't i wouldn't mind you know it's been almost two decades since we've since we've made the playoffs and people are like uh, do you really want to be one of those middling fifth six seeds? Yes. Yes, please. Can, <laughs> can I please be one of those middling fifth six seeds for just a couple of years? But let's get to it. The, the, should we be, Tim, do you think uh, at the trade deadline here, buyers, sellers, holders? I'd probably look to sell. You've got some yeah. older guys that might be able to help other teams. You've got some older guys that haven't performed all that well. Uh, I mean, Glenn Robinson hasn't seemed to work. Uh, the elites is older. Maybe could help somebody white side. If he's not playing, like trade him. I'll, I'd, I'd take him on the Lakers bench yeah, right now. Honestly. Um, Corey Joseph. Is it another older guy Bielitsa. that hasn't, the, the fit hasn't really been there. Yeah. The elites. Uh, um, 
Holmes is like 27, Barnes is 28, Heald is 28. Like, it's not the like, hey, we have a great young core of like four, five, six, seven, eight dudes. There are some like in their prime-ish kind of guys, a couple older guys, and then a couple like exciting younger players. So I would be looking, I'd at least see what the market looks like. Hold up, buddy. If you can get something on some of these guys, go for it. Maybe not Buddy Heald because he just signed a huge deal, but. Buddy's 28? Well, he has that mm-hmm. weird age thing where he was drafted. He went to college for. I They had his age wrong for like three years in the NBA. They had him a year younger than he was. The one person that you mentioned there, Tim, that I would not be willing to part with would be Kojo. And I just think he okay. does so much for our second unit and for the development of the other four players on the court. It's so important to have someone on the court who like can get you into the right position to even like have a chance to get better Mm -hmm. i love having him out there he's such a reliable second unit leader and yeah while he might not bring a bunch of wins i think if we are going to build young i would like to keep him around to make sure that all that talent develops well on the court yeah and i think no matter who's moved if anyone's moved it seems like there's kind of like a one of every type of position on your deep bench with those young players we talked about between Guy and Metu and, and Ramsey and Woodard. So if someone is moved, you're creating more opportunities for other players. Maybe you bring someone in the door. I don't know what it looks like exactly, but I would certainly try to be active if I'm the Kings and see what I can do to shuffle some pieces around. And at least like if they have an idea for a defensive scheme, go with it and get the personnel for it. What they're doing right now does not fit Whiteside. So he seems like the the most obvious sell type of candidate and he's been good this year which helps the kings in this situation because if he's been good and you don't want him either for tanking or scheme purposes his value will be higher for someone else than someone who hasn't been performing all that well and you need another team to buy into like a reclamation project tom if you could have and he's, if you could have any of those, and he's cheap too sorry oh yeah well exactly i was gonna say tom if you could have any of these players on the lakers and hassan is quite an inexpensive contract would you want like white side as like your 10th 11th man bring him in for specific situations kind of like you guys did with your bigs last year in the playoffs with McGee and Howard and it depended on the matchup who you brought in I probably would but I don't see it happening uh to be perfectly honest as far as like a personality and kind of culture fit I don't think it fits perfectly but yeah no he's exactly the kind of guy that we had Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee last year Whiteside's a great culture guy. You watch all the extra stuff on the Kings. Like when he's on the plane, he is like the light of the party and he's jumping around all the different groups. I think he honestly is good. See, but Dwight Howard actually cared about winning. Wow. Wow. He did once he came to, to our team. Yeah. He didn't apparently the years before that. Sure. I mean, Even I don't, I don't know that if that's true. He was put in a position where he didn't have to do too much for the Lakers. Exactly. And Hassan hasn't had to do too much for a few years now. You know, he's just the stopgap in Portland for Nurk. You know, he's just kind of expected, like, we know you got your contract. You play, you know, you you played however you wanted to play, and now you're on minimums. Like, to me, the personality, like, when LeBron yells at him when he misses a rotation or does the opposite of what the team expects of him, not based on his uh, lack of physical skill or whatever, just based on like, no, 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 we told you this is where you're supposed to be. Now we're holding you accountable. That's the kind of stuff where I'm like less optimistic about those kinds of fits with guys like that. Like, can you tell this guy you fucked up? And they're like, shit, my bad. I'll, I'll do better. I would hope that between LeBron, AD and, and Vogel, you can 
have the right type of structure to insert someone like this and, and have it go well. I think all the concerns Tom's sharing are very valid. I think what would help is Whiteside, again, has he's been pretty good this year. It's it's not yeah. – we're not taking a guy out of, like, his lowest of lows and needing to rise him up. And it also, I think, helps that we're not grabbing him as his first team after being paid a bunch of money. And, and this is his – oh crap, I'm no longer that guy or I'm not paid like that guy or I can't act like that guy anymore. We're the next team down, yeah. which I think may help a little bit. That's fair. Um, from from a, a person, like just just a human standpoint. Um, but no, I think you raised some some great concerns and I don't know what the Lakers would have to offer. Maybe like a, a nice no, second no. round pick. It'd be like, a buyout. I don't, no. Okay. You'd, you'd yeah. be buying out Hassan Whiteside to save yourself some money. Yeah, and... and- he was at least good enough to fool Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra at one point. I think if you got him on the Lakers, he would be fully engaged. You would get the best Hassan Whiteside you could. See, no, he would have a chance at a ring. Everybody wants a ring. Look at look at the Rondo that you guys got last year. You're pushing this guy pretty hard. I well, you know, we're just. I, I just. I guess I'm jealous of like like having you guys have a team to where like. When someone comes into your system, you got your whole system makes that player better, and there's a level of accountability with your franchise to where, like, like I was saying, with you brought you brought in Rondo, and you got Rondo to hit threes and to be fully engaged. I had Rondo on my team like a half decade ago, and it was hot garbage <laughs> with him and Boogie. It was like one of my one of the worst years of as a sports. Chiefs were in a rough place too. It was just tough times. <laughs> But I, I just, I guess I'm just jealous of that. So I, that's where I want the Kings to be. And so I'll ask you, Tom, like what pieces do the Kings need to legitimately contend? Like who would you keep around? Who would you leave? How many steps are between us and being like, at, let's say top 10 in the NBA? Top 10 is not as far as as the contending level, right? The That last extra bit between just out of contention talk and, and firmly in contention talk is probably the hardest hill to navigate in the NBA landscape, like going from pretty good to great. And you're kind of seeing like Utah, at least in the regular season, take that leap right now. And they're just playing like a different team. Right. But so it, this takes me back to what I said earlier about Fox, how good can he be at all three levels? Set that completely aside. De'Aaron Fox completely aside. How many guys that size have led teams to NBA championships in recent memory as the best player? It's tough. It's just hard for guys that size to dominate the game in repetitive, consistent, efficient ways that translate into the playoffs over and over against guys who are 6'6 and 6'10 and seven fucking three, you know, playing like unicorns that to me, it's if De'Aaron Fox is the number one, it's not happening. If you guys can get, uh, you know, some lottery luck and, and get a, a, a really high ceiling, like obviously not Luca or, or, you know, Zion falls off of trees every day, but if you can get somebody to reestablish the pecking order where it's young, bright star who, or, or, established star number one De'Aaron Fox Tyrese Halliburton plus you know Barnes healed mix of, of solid glue guys that sounds like a good team to me but is Fox the best player on a championship caliber team it's not a fair question to him entirely because it's so hard to dominate from that position on championship level 
I think that's fair. Yeah, and if only like a player like Luca, we had an opportunity to draft him, that would have been cool. Like, not like we. <sighs> Tim, what do you think? I didn't what... bring it up. You did. I know. Well, you just say the name every like every single time I see the name, I'm like, it could have been us. It could have, and like when we all knew, we all knew going to the draft. This isn't like Giannis, where like the teams before like could have been. It's like that was like some YouTube footage. Luca yeah. was like the MVP of like one of the best leagues in the world at 18. I don't know. Anyways, Tim, what? How many steps between here and success for the Kings? If success is like the tenth-ish team in the league, we're talking this year's like Nuggets, the Golden State Warriors, the Celtics, the Pacers level. Just to give a good benchmark, uh, I think there are quite a few steps. I, I think there. I think the coaching needs to be better. I don't think the talent of the roster is there yet. I think a couple of the pieces make sense and. I think it it works well for the Kings that like Halliburton and Fox are on the younger end. And like, I don't think this is going to be a two or three year jump to 10th, but four or five years from now, making the right marginal moves every step of the way, draft some good players, make some good signings, get a good trade here or there. Don't take on bad deals. Um, or if you are taking on bad deals, like grab some picks with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are ways to to go about this, but I think the, defensively you need to figure out like what is our identity what is our scheme going to look like if we're going to be playing a drop scheme we need some some rim protectors if we're going to be more switchy aggressive screen coverages like they've kind of been this year you want more mobile bigs and right now i don't think they're committed to either from a scheme or personnel standpoint i think the team needs more shooting i i think you need some more playmaking like i, I think there are guys that will be available from a free agency standpoint to fill some of the gaps but like tom said it might come down to some lottery luck or like, I think building that way or signing good players for good deals uh, is, is the way to go. I don't see the Kings being able to go into free agency and just grabbing like a top player off of like a contending team. And then just both going up to the top. Who does that? No one can do that. Only the Lakers do that. Um, (laughs) So all of that. And then I think the, the coaching needs to improve as well right now. I would say the talent of this roster isn't very high. I think the performance that the coaching staff has gotten out of it isn't up to the talent level. And we've seen that we have, we have coaching metrics in our B-ball index database. And over all the years from 2013 to now, we have like, I think 60 ish coaches in there. And Luke Walton's staff has been very much on the lower end in terms of optimizing talent. So it hasn't been a new thing. It's not only with the Kings. They just consistently haven't been too good at that. And at some point moving on from them and, and finding a coaching staff that is able to develop that identity and build that culture. And then from like an X's and O standpoint or building in principles or just like getting guys to play good basketball, there's a big gap between where you'd like to be and where like some of those teams I mentioned are and where the Kings are today. I agree. I, you know, and this is year one of the Monty McNair era and everything so far since he's come in the door has been two thumbs up in my book from signing Fox to the max, getting him to stay, and then drafting Halliburton and developing that relationship. You know, like Halliburton ended up not working out for some teams because of how well he got along with the Kings, which is just not something I'd heard for over a decade with the team of like a player like wanting to go there in the draft. So hopefully the trend continues that way of smart moves, little moves here, there around the edges, and they can hopefully build something. I mean, this season looks a lot worse if you take Denny Advia instead of Tyrese Halliburton, right? So like, 
you're looking up like right like long term wise it's on the up and up at least with that couple guard pairing you got there yeah the, the players that are on the roster right now that are future players are the right kinds of guys that you do want mm-hmm. to be building around like Halliburton like he's a primary ball handler on offense like he's someone that as he develops more and more can be one of your offensive engines and, and is someone that you can build around whereas like Denny right now he's being used as like a stationary shooter yeah. that's not that doesn't scream, hey, there's a bunch of potential upside here with how he's playing. He can be good and impactful right now, but it's not like superstar potential, top 30 potential like you mentioned, Nick. Yeah. I think you can still believe in Fox and Halliburton in that sort of way. And that I do. Hard not to. Well, before I let you guys go here, I have one little surprise for you that I did not put on your notes. Uh, last night, as of recording, LeBron scored his 35,000th point. And it was on a free throw. And as of recording, he's made 665 free throws as a Laker. Don't be opening up any stats, by the way, you two. And 700 or 7,527 free throws made for his career. If he had played his whole career in LA, he would be second all time for free throws made as a Laker. And he would need to make around 1,800 more free throws as of now to crack the top 10 for all-time Lakers made free throws. So I'm going to ask you guys, can you name the top 10 free throws made for Lakers just as a Laker? Kobe. Kobe's Kobe, on the list. Kobe's Kobe, number one. Kobe, Kareem, Magic, Baylor, yes. West. Yes, yes, there's your top five. Shaq. Yep, he's at seven. Got somebody in between Shaq and Kareem there. Wow. No, but another big man. One huh. that you guys debatably shouldn't claim, but you do. Oh, wait. No, I don't know. Wait. Oh, for the Lakers. You're talking, they made these free throws for the Lakers? Yeah, that's... For the Lakers. Oh, okay. Yeah, he has a he has a drill specifically named after Oh, Mikan. George Mikan. There we go. How dare you? you, you you're you on this Minneapolis trutherism too, Nick? I got to give you a hard time. Right, what do I have room to talk? The Rochester Royals <laughs> are our only championship okay, for the but... Kings. And that was before okay. they became the Cincinnati Royals, before they came the Kansas City Omaha Kings, before they were the Kansas City Kings, before they were the Sacramento Kings. It's, you know, it's the way it goes. Uh, the eighth guy on this list I've actually never heard of, uh, but nine and ten I have. Ten you should definitely get. It is a... a pretty sure a hall of famer isn't that what the asterisk means <laughs> no no oh. i want to say probably i don't know what you're looking at i want to say somebody so. like Derek fisher who just played for the team for like 18 years are these are they older guys are these this like 10th is retired a long time ago 10th is an 80s guy he was part of like okay. the show oh, worthy time. there you go james yeah worthy. of course yeah. james worthy and like I said, I haven't heard of eighth, but ninth I have heard of, but he's an old player, like played in the like 60s and 70s. Uh, he played uh, two different stints with the Lakers. He played the very beginning of his career with his Lakers and he went to Phoenix for a couple years. His nickname is Stumpy or the Stump, apparently. He, he's got an alliteration. This is all you, Tom. Alliteration I don't, I don't name. Man. GG. George Gervin? Gail Goodrich. Oh. Yeah, Goodrich, of course. Of course. Sorry, we, you know, our, what would be some team's greatest overall player is like our 15th. I know, I was looking at this list. I was like, what an embarrassment of riches (laughs) on all these Lakers all-time leaders lists. Uh, Okay, the last person we have here, I don't think you'll get it, Vern Mickelson? No way. That's a fake person. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies to Vern. 
may his memory be eternal. But I don't know. He was a Minneapolis Laker from 49 to 59. Come on, guys. You guys should know all of your Lakers history. Oh, man. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on the show. Tom, go ahead. Plug what you got, please. No, thank you, man. Uh, just subscribe to our pod, Tim and I, on the Lakers Exceptionalism pod. Follow us on Twitch. Uh, dot tv slash lakers exceptionalism pod and uh appreciate you having us on man to talk some kings we gotta have you on when we do our why your team sucks segment coming up when we play the kings that's in about two weeks a little less than two weeks from now so we'll probably preview it two mondays it's fun it's great we will we'll trash talk your i don't know your jerseys your city mascot do you you have any yeah do you have any wiley mascots now we have we have the lion guy. I don't know. I, I don't worry too much about the matter. The lion's gonna get roasted. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be great. Oh, then I also I'll just toss out my nickname for the arena. There is Pride Rock. I've been trying to get it to catch. Oh, up. I like that. I like oh, that. that's yeah. a good one. Thanks. Now we're getting some good. There we go. Let's let's make it a thing. Sometime I want to have Tom and Tim. You're welcome too. I want to give nicknames to all the arenas sometime. Sounds like a good time. I'll start using Pride Rock. When we play that game, I'll be calling oh, yeah. it Pride Rock. Yes. See if it catches up. Let's make it a thing. And yeah, Add Mark Jones. Tim, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mark Jones, top five broadcast team in the NBA. Nobody can argue that. They're fun. Yeah, they are yeah. so much fun. It's like them, Charlotte, and Brooklyn are like my yeah. three favorite. Charlotte just goes nuts all the time. They have so much They're fun. Broadcasting. They're broadcasting. So yeah, they are. <laughs> Dude, they're so great. Like Bismack Biabo takes the three, and they're like, "Oh, Biabo!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really get into it. Uh, Tim, thank you for joining me. You, what do you got to plug? You have the LeBron stat. You, we've been. Yeah, we we please tell us all I, about it. We so we uh so over at B Ball Index, we have a bunch of different stats going on. We have a bunch that tries to analyze the talent of players and try to dig into their context, context and situation, and like, oh, like. Is Rudy Gobert standing behind you to block all the shots that for the guys that you let drive past you? Like, that's going to matter. Or is your lineup spacing horrible? That'll matter for these. And then we have impact stats. And the impact stat that we use is LeBron. It's a luck-adjusted player estimate using basically like RAPM calculations. It's It looks at box score stuff. It looks at on-off stuff. It uses a bunch of fancy math. It'll look at the job that you're doing on offense. And, and try to fill in some blanks on small sample players with like, hey, other rim running bigs aren't good for uh, three point shooters. So if you started the season off like two for four, but you're JaVale McGee, maybe we're not going to believe that um, little things like that to fill in some of the blanks. So we have that that's over at the site for free. You can go enjoy that. We have a bunch of cool free tools over there if you want to analyze players um compare them look across different years we have info on coaching staffs we have info on schemes um also all sorts of different things over at bball-index.com and you can find me on the twitter cranjus mcbasketball i'm at tim underscore mba absolutely and i will include the links to all of these things that these two guys have mentioned in the show notes uh yeah appreciate you guys coming on and we'll do it again soon thanks buddy thanks for having us Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com 